0: Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. I don't much like roller coasters. My dislike of the rides is connected to this specific experience I had at Disneyland when I was seven or eight years old. After arriving at the park early in the morning to beat the lines, one of the first, if not the very first ride I went on was Space Mountain. I don't know if I, how I like met the height requirements, but somehow I got on there. Concern rose for me when the handlebars locked into place, but it wasn't until the coaster began to make its long ascent and the bright lights, like those from 2001, A Space Odyssey, began assaulting my childhood eyes and brain that I realized I was in over my head. From there, as we careened up and down and side to side in the dark, feeling both sick and terrified, I just wanted the ride to be over. I wish I'd never gotten on. But of course, at that point, there was nothing to be done. That was the ride I'd chosen it would play out along those tracks no matter what. I remember stumbling out into the bright California sun, crying, (laughs) and ever since, I've been hesitant about coasters and extreme rides, even though some of them do look quite cool. That idea of stepping onto a ride and then having to see it through to its determined end has come to mind this week as I've reflected on the passages appointed for this morning. And I think that idea of being on a ride, being on tracks, can help us make sense of the somewhat challenging, perhaps even discomforting, things we just heard in the word of God. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. That verse probably doesn't finish the way we expect. Chosen. Chosen. Elect, therefore punished? And the word chosen there in Amos 3 is the same word found in Psalm 139, translated as known. Perhaps extending our discomfort to the celebration of God's omnipresence and omniscience. God is acquainted with our ways. We're known by God. Is that good? To what end? And for those of us here today who count ourselves members of the church, part of the church, followers of Jesus, baptized in him, perhaps there's a sense in reading these words, hearing these words, of what ride did I get on? Where are we headed? I'd like to address that question this morning as we look at our readings, and specifically the readings from Amos and from the Gospel of Matthew. And as we do so, I'd like to group our thinking around two headings, First, chosen for transformation. And then second, chosen for participation. Chosen for transformation, chosen for participation. And yes, both of those, transformation and participation, happen to be core values here at Church of the Cross. Values we might grow in in the seasons ahead. It's called leadership, people. (laughs) But first, chosen for transformation. The book of Amos begins with seven prophetic oracles pronouncing judgment on the nations around Israel. Literally seven nations surrounding, ringing the nation of Israel, Damascus, Edom, Tyre, Gaza, Ammon, Moab, and Judah. This is the point when the kingdoms are divided in Israel's history. And these nations in the first chapter of Amos are just getting pummeled for their acts of rebellion. And there are these terrifying pronouncements of what God is going to do to them. And you can perhaps imagine Amos's first readers, first hearers, Israelites being like, yes, fire is coming, it's gonna consume y'all. Finally, you're gonna get it because you're not chosen. We're the special people, you're not chosen. To be honest, it's kind of like how Canadians feel when we hear America criticized. (laughs) Bigger brothers getting it and we're like, we know they're weird, kind of smug. Kind of self satisfied. But then in Amos, right, the record scratches. Things take a turn. Verse one, Amos three, hear this, people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you. What? Did not see that coming. The whole thing has been this setup. Yes, the nations around Israel are under God's sovereign judgment but so too are you, even though you are God's chosen, especially because you are God's chosen. How can this be? Notice in verse one, there's also this mention of the Exodus, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, from slavery. This gracious, undeserved action of rescue and redemption. God plucking his people, this nation, out from suffering and bondage, choosing them, responding to their situation, to their cry. This amazing expression of God's mercy, this revealing his character as a deliverer. This is like the paradigm for the whole rest of Scripture, for Jesus' own life and ministry, delivering people from bondage. And those qualities in God are still alive today. Perhaps you have experienced them. You've known them. They can be known today. His rescue, his deliverance, freedom from shame, from oppression, from addiction. It's what we are singing about this morning. It's what we are coming to this table to recollect. But the story of the Exodus, of God's deliverance there, does not end with departure from Egypt, of course. His commitment to his people, to us is such that it extends in relationship. It extends in his desire for our full restoration. There is more that God desires and has for his people. There's covenant. There's ongoing relationship. There's calling to be a blessing to the nations, to be a holy nation, a becoming that God has for his people, for you. I've mentioned this before, but I'm I'm very slowly working my way through David Blight's massive biography of Frederick Douglass. And one of the key moments in Douglass's life, as you can imagine, followed the pronouncement of the Emancipation Declaration and the end of the Civil War. And in that moment, which was the, those moments which were the culmination of so much that Douglass had worked for, he'd been born into slavery, so much of what he'd longed after, worked toward, resulted in like his celebration, his rejoicing. But those moments also unleashed in him this remarkable energy, so that he gave speeches, he petitioned political leaders, calling for more than simply the cessation of slavery. Calling for material support, for political agency, the right to vote, such that those who had newly been liberated, black Americans, would not be abandoned but that they might be established and flourish and grow into, in America, who they were created to be. He uses explicitly Christian language in his speeches. And the period of reconstruction in American history is this brief expression of living into this, living into what Douglas was calling toward before the nation fell away from caring for, empowering the newly delivered. But where the nations fail... God does not. And God does not abandon his people. He is wholly committed to them, wholly committed to you and to your growth into who you were made to be, a true bearer of his image. This reality, God's saving action, his deliverance, and his ongoing commitment is the context in which we can hear and read, understand Amos chapter 3. Sure, it is a strident and bracing word. It should bring us up short, perhaps. But it's an expression of God's resolute commitment to his people, you included, and an expression of his intention that they will become who they're made to be, a holy nation, an expression of his goodness in the world, a reflection of his beauty. And the situation that seems to give rise to this pronouncement of judgment in chapter three was that the people of Israel were living in remarkable disorder, falling far short of the beauty, the goodness that God had for them out of his deliverance. The rest of the book reveals this, right? The poor are being actively mistreated. There is rampant sexual immorality. Their society has become inescapably violent. Worship of God has become a mockery as it's been disconnected from any sense of moral vision. The sense that they are a chosen people has manifested itself in self-satisfaction and they are actively opposing any warning about all of this. And verse 10 puts the crescendo on it when it says their moral imagination is so malformed that they are incapable of knowing or doing what is right. Like even a broken clock is right twice an hour. But the people of Israel are so disordered, they cannot get it right at all. And God's love for them is so great. God's intention for his delivered people is such that he will not allow it. That is not where this ride is going to go. His unstoppable desire is that the people who bear his name will reflect his goodness and beauty in their relationship to the poor and how they use their bodies, in their care for the vulnerable and weak, in their worship of him in spirit and truth, in their humility and willingness to receive correction, in their intention and capacity to love and do what is right and pure. That is God's intention for his people. That is God's intention for you and I, for us together. And he will work toward that end in our lives. That is where the ride is headed. It's the season of epiphany, where we celebrate the light of Christ shining forth. And the thing about light is that it brings warmth, but it's also piercing. It reveals, it exposes when Shannon and I lived in Japan, an American friend of ours slept without a bed, just on a pad on tatami mats, like Japanese style. And he told me this story of one night waking up with this sharp, sudden pain in, on his arm. And as he quickly like, flicked on the lamp, he saw the tail of a poisonous centipede crawling down through the cracks between the tatami mats. Quickly turning on more of the lights, he flipped up, the tatami mat where he'd seen it go through. And he said the floor underneath looked like it was alive with the bugs and the critters just scattering in the light. He said he spent all night like vacuuming them up. I think he bought a bed shortly thereafter. The idea, of course, is that light reveals, exposes. And to be in the light of Christ is to see ourselves exposed in some way, to be pierced to walk, to journey with the light that is Christ means those realities of our own lives, of our life together, that we would rather keep hidden, must be dealt with. And there's a freedom to that dealing because they have been dealt with at the cross, the victory of Jesus. And we don't do it alone. There's the ministry of the Holy Spirit convicting and guiding us into goodness and beauty. But there is an invitation to, uh, uh, for us to cooperate with that work, to live into where the ride is headed. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That pronouncement with which Jesus begins his earthly public ministry in Matthew is more, is better than I love you just the way you are. That is true. But there is a ferocity to the love of God that proclaims I will not leave you as you are. That statement is the justice, the truth, the peace, the goodness you desire is now present and shining forth in the world. So come into alignment. Be made new in the fullness of your life. Belong in this world that I am making again. Think again. Consider your whole life in relation to what I am doing. To be near Christ To be baptized in him is to be chosen for transformation. We hear those words as a threat, and perhaps for good reason, for the ways that we are committed to staying just the way we are, to not changing. But to be yoked with Christ, who is gentle and lowly, but powerful and inexorably making all things new, is to be on this ride which must and will change you. And it will change you for participation. That's the second, chosen for participation. Participation in God's mission and purposes. You've been chosen for participation. The reading from Matthew 4 begins with this sense of setback. John the Baptist has been arrested and Jesus withdraws. And it looks a lot like retreat. Perhaps the forces of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, are simply too strong. The way of the world in bondage and disorder will remain. And that's a picture of the world that is so very easy to believe. It's a picture of ourselves that's so very easy to believe. But as the reading in Matthew continues, we see Jesus on the move. And in the language of Epiphany, the language of Isaiah, the light is advancing, pushing back the darkness, even when, perhaps especially when, it looks like retreat. In Israel, among God's chosen people, and to the nations, to Galilee of the Gentiles. In this season of Epiphany, the church reminds itself that however circumstances appear, however pervasive the hold of darkness seems to be, The light of Christ is shining forth and will not be overcome. That's where the ride is headed, with the whole earth alight in God's glory. I was working this week on this sermon at Easy Tiger over on I-35. I was totally taking advantage of their Wi-Fi, drinking gallons of water there for a while. And one of the workers saw the books I had, my notes, kind of a mess, and they asked me, they're like, do you have any philosophy or theology for me to read? And I was like, this is probably not the most hospitable thing. The first thing I was like, you a Christian? Uh, probably not the most hospitable first question, but I wasn't sure what to recommend. He's not a Christian, but he said he's interested. He's reading Rumi and Nietzsche and the Lord of the Rings. Interesting combination. <laughs> so we talked a little. I texted some friends, asked for suggestions, and recommended a few titles. I literally did nothing to provoke the interaction. The light of Christ shining forth in the world. You can pray for him. His name is Jace. I'm going to go back to Easy Tiger and see if he's read anything in the next few months. And my absolute passivity is part of the point of that story. The light of Christ is shining forth. And to be in Christ, to be with him, is to be caught up in this reality of the light going forth to the nations. It is to become a participant in Christ's great work of illumination. And part of the reason we are to be transformed, part of the reason you and I are to be ruthless when it comes to sin in our lives, is that our participation involves coming to reflect the beauty and goodness of God and being willing, being prepared, equipped to share in the shining forth. There is perhaps for us each this morning a renewed call to serious and good work of holiness in our lives that we might answer readily in the language of our collect this morning. And yet if it rests on us, I think we all know the work will not proceed because all of this is ultimately the work of God's grace in our lives. We, you and I are not the primary agents of our participation of our transformation This is simply where the thing goes when we're with Jesus. The language of verse 19 in Matthew 4 rendered here as we have it, I will send you out to fish for people, is more literally translated, I will make you to be fishers of people. I will make you. Jesus is the primary agent of our transformation and participation. As we follow him, we are going to be changed. As we keep company with him, as we receive grace from him, his holiness becomes ours. As we seek to pattern our lives after his, we are inevitably brought into greater alignment with God's purposes, beautiful, good, and true in the world. We're made to belong in a kingdom that we have no purchase in on our own. A prompting of the Holy Spirit this morning maybe for us to, without condemnation, consider the shape of our own lives and the degree to which we see ourselves being renewed, transformed, becoming ready and willing to participate in the light of Christ shining forth. And where we fail to see that transformation, the reflection of God's goodness and beauty to ask, what ride am I on? With David Byrne and talking heads to say, how did I get here? And then to confess and repent, to receive again, or for the very first time, the grace of Jesus, and to follow again more closely with the one who is faithfully and gently, but surely making us to be fishers of others, making us anew in his likeness. I began by talking about roller coasters, but perhaps a better image might have been of that of a, a gondola or a chairlift. Because it it feels like a roller coaster, up and down, side to side, terrifying in the dark. But the ride with Christ goes only in one direction. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Christ's journey is one of descent, in the incarnation, in his passion at the cross. And then of ascent, resurrection, return to the Father, and elevation to glory in the highest places. And to follow after him is to set ourselves on the same trajectory, to become passengers, participants in his journey of holiness and glory. As you set your trust in Jesus, as you make his way your own, transformation, participation in God, with God, by his grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are the inevitable result. That is simply where the ride goes. In the name of the Father, the Son, The Holy Spirit, amen.